You're listening to The Razor's Edge. The Razor's Edge is an investing podcast. Your hosts are Akram's Razor, an investor and trader with decades of experience in markets, and me, Daniel Schwarzman, who has only one decade of experience, but has spent plenty of time working at Seeking Alpha, seeing how investing ideas work. We usually start with ideas from Akram's Investing, break them down, bring on guests and experts to flesh them out, and try to understand both the investing idea itself and the thinking that goes behind it. To get episodes of The Razor's Edge, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get podcasts. You can also check out Akram's work on The Razor's Edge on Seeking Alpha's Marketplace by searching for The Razor's Edge. If you have a chance to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or share this with a friend, we'd appreciate it. You can also reach us on Twitter at at Daniel Shortman and at Akram's Razor. Our standard disclaimer and disclosure, The Razor's Edge is a Shortman Studios production. The views discussed belong to either Akram or me, respectively, or to our guests when we have them. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice of any sort. We'll disclose any positions in any stocks discussed at the end of the podcast or during our introduction to the episode. This week's episode features part two of our Atlassian Mafia conversation with Justin Stepka and Jens Schumacher. We're zooming out a little, looking at SaaS competition, the importance of integrated cloud stacks, the broader COVID, and macro setup. This leads to us diving in on Atlassian, PagerDuty, Zoom, and Snowflake in various segments. I think there's a lot you'll get value out of here, but I especially enjoy the insider-outsider perspective that the Atlassian guys add to our discussion. Before beginning, I want to thank Yago17, Tom Malloy, Atif J, and Susan Pet for leaving us five-star reviews on Apple. In general, your reviews mean a ton to us and help more and more people discover this show, so thank you. For disclosures, Justin is long at Atlassian, PagerDuty, Slack, Amazon, and ServiceNow. Jens is long at Alaskan, PagerDuty, and DocuSign. Akram is long PagerDuty, Slack, and Twitter. I am long Google, Dell, Dropbox, and PagerDuty. This call was recorded Wednesday, September 23rd in the U.S. It was Thursday the 24th in Spain and Australia. All right, let's go. The thing that you kind of hinted at there, Justin, was, you know, maybe where we want to take this is the, the winner-take-all and sort of the competing verticals. And I, I think Akram earlier met, alluded to what Microsoft Teams announced as or Microsoft announced that might be crowding into Twilio space. And even if we use DocuSign and Adobe, Adobe is the, still sort of the PDF company. And that's where a lot of the, so like you could see where they have that ambition to crowd into the signing space. And so I guess for you guys, what is your sense of that six months into this? Obviously, coming from that Atlassian background, Akram had started his pager duty short from the perspective of Ops Genie. Like, in all this, there's only so much land to grab. There's only so much to take uh, in a winner take all sense. So, I, I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on like where we are in the market with that or what you're seeing from these different we have companies. Seen, we, we've seen and, so much of that. I mean, like, like you, you and I discussed this before when we did, when we did, when we were talking about once upon a time in tech early on and that like you will have competition. And I mean, I was once upon a time, a short slack and like the Microsoft teams thesis was kind of obvious. And 
it's it hung it's it hung around hung around hung around fast forward a year later and look i mean microsoft is is it's impressive right i mean justin you've you've been commending them a lot like i mean we've had a couple guys in the slack talking about satya i mean everybody is really impressed with their execution and you do look at adjacencies and whether like there is this idea of commoditize my neighbor's adjacency before he comes into my market. And I'm like, there's a lot of that going on in software where you're just like, now, how much is noise? This, like, you guys are obviously are coming from this space. And I mean, we could start, I think, you know, in terms of pivoting this conversation with, with Atlassian. You're both ex Atlassian employees. Uh, I presume you both, uh, Jens, you still probably, ha- you know, have a lot of Atlassian shares, I guess. Pew, yes. 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 And, and, and Justin, you too. Look, so, Jens is, is on record saying that he's not going to sell them. I, I haven't sold any. I think the future for lasting is very bright. I mean, you guys have 10x, I mean, uh, like in the last two years. I, 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 we're not going to get into mentally how that impacts things. When you think about it, Lassian, we have now upcoming an IPO called Asana, which you guys are both probably familiar with, right? I know mm. a lot more about it than me, I'm sure. I mean, I just know it started by the Facebook guy, Moskowitz. Yep. And I mean, that's always been there in the background as a competitor with, a, you know, a big sugar daddy behind it. Kind of like, uh, what's his name? Uh, we got into... Moskowitz. Yeah, Moskowitz, but the other one, Freed, Freed. What's his Jason, Jason Freed's one? Basecamp. Basecamp, Base. yes. So, I mean, there's always been these like guys around Jira and then like, I mean, if you, you ran service desk, right? Jens, like there's probably... You guys have always probably had some sort of indirect butting heads with ServiceNow and Zendesk and whatnot, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, these things do exist in, in software. And the narrative in SaaS has been for, let's call it for the last decade, I'm knocking off this on-premise company. You know, ServiceNow destroyed BMC. If you look at, at players in like Snowflake, I mean, like I was short Teradata. I mean, I know Snowflake because I was short Teradata like 18 months ago. And it was like, hey, the Snowflake is eating their lunch. Like, you couldn't have a Teradata conference call where Snowflake is not somewhere. In, and like, they've been going back and forth. Like, PR comes out and Snowflake saved you $10 million on your you know, car insurance. <laughs> and it's like Teradata has to respond and be like, that's lies, lies. This stuff, this stuff goes on. But I mean, I think we've seen in the last couple of weeks where like this post-COVID, particularly for at least for me. And I mean, I know Justin, you're, you're long Slack and PagerDuty. And I mean, we got, uh, it was not pretty a couple of weeks ago where, where PagerDuty got hit really hard. And you look at it the next day and you're like, come on, that's just bullshit. Like there was, the order was fine. Yeah, it's not, it's not the excitement around Twilio. It's definitely not the excitement around Zoom. But now fast forward to today and I'm just talking a few weeks and like, You've got Microsoft being like, hey, a lot of people at, at Azure Active Directory, uh, you know, wanted access to Teams. And like, we're like, you know what? We, we figured out, hey, why not just open this? Because, you know, our HD voice and video is really good. And uh, we'll just allow that to be plugged in and we'll give the developers a kit. Right? I think that's just, that's just, that's just good marketing on their behalf. And by the way, we did the same thing on Bitbucket at Atlassian. GitHub was kicking our ass and we gave, we gave away free source code repositories for teams that were less than five people. It, 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 when you think of it in, in, in going to the, the Slack and pager duty being down in the short term, I, the way I think about it is just who cares? 
80%, maybe I can't remember the name of the report, but 80% of workloads are still behind the cloud. We, we have that, that, that statistic will consistently be, be given out. I, I, I will say bullshit to it. <laughs> but, but what is it? I, mean, I, I, I agree. I agree. I get it. I, 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 I 100% get that. But you will always be told it's the second inning till the multiples are back, you know, single digits again, and people are talking about them as utilities. So from our standpoint as shareholders, when we look at a Slack and a pager duty, like I want to see them turn into, to, it, you have to have at least the vision that they can get big enough to be where we look at an Atlassian. Atlassian, $40 billion company, a multi-billion free cash flow. And even that right now, like there are some people who are like, hey, what's next from Atlassian, right? Like we started this with, you've got these companies going public, and once everyone's public, understand, I was looking at my list. If you go back to 2016, when the most expensive SaaS stock, and I, I'd done a little bit of like, I'd been short Tableo and LinkedIn when they blew up. When I'd say blew up, they dropped 50% in a day in February of 2016. On like misses, your typical, nothing was going to, the business wasn't going to disappear tomorrow, but it looked that way the next day, the way they traded. But that was a great time to offer those at the bottom of the, of the software market. And an interesting thing about looking at that market is the most expensive stock then, which was growing almost triple digits trailing revenue was Workday. And I mean, it was 5.8 times sales, right? So I don't want to be in pager duty in, in three years if it's at just $300 million sure. in revenue. And what is, what is your entry point and what is your exit point, right? That's the, that's the question. That's exactly, the, right? So, but we don't want, like, when we qualitatively evaluate the business, and like, one of the things that obviously flipped the pager duty short is that they're sticky at the enterprise level. I don't care about the churn at the SMB level right now. And when I look at a, when I look at a potential competitor, like you just said, I'll give X, Y, and Z away for free. But like, do I want to mess with my alarm once I've, someone's done all the integrations? You're playing catch up. And if I'm playing catch up to come at you when you don't have that big of a potential, revenue opportunity, like if let's say um, I'm service now, I might as well just buy you, which is where you and I have talked about, for example, Zoom and Slack, right? I mean, Zoom is bigger than Cisco now, dude. That's a $15 billion free cash flow company, okay? It's enterprise value and it, it is smaller than the video conferencing app. I mean, some of them are blown way outside of proportion. There's, there's for sure that. And, and, and there are others that are not. And I guess... Thinking about it thematically, the way that I look at it is this is why I like small mid-cap tech companies a lot better than big ones. This is because you can proportionally manage the way that you think about what their growth potential is. And, and when they start slowing down, obviously, they pay a very big penalty later on. That marginal difference is huge. If you're growing billings at 40%, People are willing to give you, this is where the, 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 the and we discussed this last time, and I, I don't know if you listened to the podcast where we talked about it, I think you said you did, where we talked about when PagerDuty's earnings report and the blow up that happened. I mean, obviously the whole market blew up, right? Everybody in SaaS pretty much dropped 25, 30%. And you're just like, okay, this just kind of collided, unfortunately, with the timing of, you know, their earnings. And God, I wish you guys would freaking start reporting at the beginning of the earnings cycle in software. Because it's like there's been this huge momentum, it builds up, you get excited. And you know, you look at it today and it's like, it's back to where it was the week before Workday and Zoom and whatever mania where things were moving, and Salesforce moving 30% in a day, right? I mean, Salesforce is a big company. It's been public since, what, 2004, 2005, I don't remember. So when you think about this dynamic, 
and and you you know see Beanoff you know tweeting their history of compounding revenue, and we we were discussing this with with, with regards to uh, Box's CEO Aaron Levy, and like I I look at I'm like don't these guys get annoyed that they've been doing this or they've been working this hard they're a software company and along comes an IPO that uh, on day one is trading at 20 times their entire size of their business. And it hasn't even yet achieved the scale it's achieving. We get how it's framed and we get the narrative, but that's something where we look at these things today. And, and, and we did step back, I think, with, with both Slack and PagerDuty. And there is the second derivative element. How they monetize is different, obviously, than a Zoom. Going to this whole consumption element around infrastructure that like you were kind of talking about with, with e-commerce gens is next year resource like you, you you will have scaled up enough to handle a pandemic you're probably not going to run into scaling issues right? right but i mean i guess the thing that i think about and i would really love to hear jens's opinion on this is this is when i talk to my friends that work in places other than silicon valley they don't have automated alert systems yet right and so there's there's a ton of green field out there that can be grabbed and when I, when I talk to my friends that don't live in Silicon Valley and I'm like, hey, we've got wallboards and we've got automated deployments through chat channels and we've got issue resolutions and chat rooms automatically created when there's problems. And I tell people about these workflows that exist for technology companies that are like, what are you, what are you even talking about? And so this is what I mean by greenfield development. And there's a ton of potential left for, for those companies yeah. to grow, relating it back to the 80% of the workloads haven't converted to, to modern methodologies yet. Because the employees, no, I, I some of them are over 50 and 60 and they can't touch any of this stuff. They don't, they're not gonna be familiar with it who are making these buying decisions, right? They have to die or retire. I agree there's a, a lot of opportunities still. For PagerDuty, the, the enterprise market and the name recognition is definitely it helps them. The, the problem I always had with PagerDuty is what we talked about in the beginning, it's a, so far a single product company. And it's not as like, it's not a Zoom or it's not a Slack. So the, they didn't really have a good path apart from like getting more people to adopt within the company to expand and to, to increase their, their revenue within the company. For Atlassian, like there was always a, a big play. And I said earlier, a few, I have a few shares left. I think like 95% of my portfolio is actually still Atlassian. So I'm probably a bit uh, heavy there, but the opportunity for Atlassian is because they have such a broad range of products that they can bring to a particular problem set. In this case, like IT, I think is a, is a massive opportunity because of the pricing point for Atlassian, which is really affordable. And if they build out more of the capabilities, which, which I know they're doing in terms of change management and uh, and kind of modernizing some of those processes because they're pretty old. But like when I was still at last year, we looked at change management in particular, which was a heavy process. And how do we make that more modern? How do we make that more lightweight? And how do we automate some of this with AI? If there's a change that is not as risky, how do I know whether it's risky? Can we analyze the code for it? Can we analyze who worked on it? Can we analyze the builds they broke or the tests they broke before or the track record? So that's all information that you can take into account in order to make decisions on how difficult or how risky a change is. And then you get someone to, to look at it or not. So there's a ton of space to innovate. And I think Atlassian is really well positioned because of the, the range of product service. There's Jira and the interaction between the development team and the IT team. Now, for coming back to pager duty, I always thought they were missing 
that part of the business where they can expand. And this boy actually, this week, I'm more excited about PagerDuty. I, I did take a small position uh, like before the earnings call with the acquisition of, uh, I think, Rundeck. That's a, that's a big part to incident management. And I think they haven't had a good opportunity to upsell people, but Rundeck allows you to automate some of those processes, in particular, if you have an incident that's critical. You want to define processes that you can run through and that you can automate when that happens. Because at that time in particular, if it's two o'clock in the morning, nobody is really clear headed and you want to make sure that you remove human error out of that equation. And I think that's a really good strategy for them, like acquiring good product in that space and then using that to expand in the, in the field that they're already in. I, personally, I thought that was a really good move. Well, the market liked it. I mean, the stock went up 8%, and it's like uh, everything didn't happen, and we're right back where we were four weeks ago. But Justin, you were about to say, because you and I have talked about this with Slack. I mean, forget PagerDuty for now. We have both voiced views on the marketing, and you've obviously, we've been watching sports lately, and Microsoft Teams has been crushing it with their marketing. It is something that does resonate. It does stand out. And then, you know, like I, 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 was, I was giving Cap a little bit of a hard time, because like you're saying, you guys announce something, you can give it away for free. But I mean, what Microsoft appears to be hinting at here, with, which is what, what I've discussed with, with the cap is, is, well, look, we've got these global telcos that essentially are Zoom and, and now Teams. We can turn that, we can productize that from maybe a time where before you would look at it and someone like Microsoft may be like, how hard, how long it took them essentially to pivot away from like the monopolist a Windows ecosystem to owning GitHub and being like, hey, let's just open the door immediately and then not even think about it. You use Teams, if you use Teams directly, or hey, if you want to plug in video and audio level Teams communication into an app you're building, here you go. And oh, if you want a phone number and if you want this and authentication, et cetera, et cetera. And that's an interesting thing when you look, I mean, because you do have to think about like, when I look at Zoom and you go to their website now, they're giving you the one year annual. They started this like, what, 30 days ago, where, I mean, Zoom right now is 40% prosumer. They're paying $15 a month. I mean, if COVID was to magically disappear, just go away, it'll be gone like you've never seen it before. But if that was to happen, you don't want to be on a month to month because you'll just be like, all right, I cancel it. If it's a year, you've removed a lot of that volatility and you're given that 20% discount. But if you look at the website, it's now got like education, it's got health, Zoom healthcare. Zoom is, you know, it's moving fast. And I'm, I'm very impressed by them execution-wise, considering how much inbound they probably had and how much headache they probably had around infrastructure. And I mean, go, go back six months ago when we were talking about this, right? Remember the security problems? There was like Zoom, China, Zoom, China. Zoom's got a China connection. And they've, you know, they're not bigger than Cisco. So when you look at it, I mean, it is crazy for them to be bigger than Cisco. but if you're them and it's like, okay, well, we can do the UCAS, we can do this, we can be the Twilio, we can be the, we can be the CPAS, we can be this. Like, that's what you got to be thinking if you're them and you're 160 billion. Oh, we're going to do like, I mean, we, we had that announcement, like you're saying a few weeks ago when we were talking about this with Slack, uh, when Zoom is working out, was it a few weeks ago or is it a week ago? I mean, time in, in, under COVID is just ridiculous, but they announced the messenger. They're working on a messaging service, right? Who's this? Zoom, Zoom, oh, yeah, Zoom, yeah. Zoom working on a messaging service, yes, Zoom. right? I mean, like today we have Microsoft uh, entering into the CPaaS. 
Last week, it was Zoom was working on a messaging service like Slack or Teams or whatever. And I mean, yeah, like, yes. since my comment, you my saw comment the service. Was, the only person that doesn't have a competitive offering at this time is Amazon. And it's, it's the way that I was thinking about that when I was making that comment is just that uh, going back to the lab path, last podcast that we talked about, there's just certain technologies that every single company is going to have uh, to need. And, and video and chat is one of them. Jens was talking about this the other day in a chat that we were having where like you align yourself with one cloud person and you, you're essentially deciding to get pregnant with that person for the next decade. And so what, what he didn't say that that's my interpretation of it, but like you, you have to pick a person to have a baby with and, and, and what you're going to do is you're going to align your technology stack with these companies for the coming decade. And so you, you can pick sort of every slice of thing that you're going to need, whether or not it's, it's a database sort of in terms of snowflake and snowflake goes across all these, it's multi-cloud, but like, you need a database, you need a chat server, you need video, right? Like you're going to need email, you're going to need a document management system, you're going to need an issue tracking system, you're going to need all of these things. And like, how are you going to align yourself for the coming decade as you accelerate your business into what is a new, a new way of conducting yourself? And this is going back to my point where uh, there are a lot of businesses that, that haven't done this yet and they're making these choices. And that's why you see the, the, the high multiples that you're seeing in, in these businesses. I think the tricky part for Slack and like Zoom to, to some degree as well is that those products are just not as sticky in terms of the history or like what happens if I change from, from Zoom to Meet today? Like at the moment, okay, we're so actually yeah. using well, what, Meet. Hip chat, hip, yeah. hip chat, hip chat. I mean, yeah. you, you, you can, I don't know how much you can talk about or your experience since but we don't you, work you, there you we know, can say whatever you're, 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 want you're sure yeah exactly so like what like get, what happened with hipchat because hipchat came along and atlassian and slack went to war and slack won you guys surrendered at the end yes yeah we did and i would say this i would say this i, I know what the budget of bitbucket was versus github and i know what the budget of hipchat versus uh, slack was and they were 10 to 1 difference <laughs> i think this is like this 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 is what you find though in, in large companies. Like it's really hard to, to innovate or like throw a lot of your resources into, into a new part of the business while you know that your other products are growing like 40%, 50% year over year. So do you take people away from those products or resources to optimize for that new business that, that is risky? So, and that's why you have competitors like Zoom or, or Slack coming up. The other part is we use Google Meet at the moment and it's not bad. But I think because Google insists so much of that thing running in a browser, it's, it's really annoying not having an app for it. But because they're the, like basically the Chrome browser company, everything has to run in a browser for them. And I think that hurts them. And for Microsoft as well, they want to put everything they have into Teams and hook it in. And I think that makes the usability not as good and they can't focus or innovate on, on the core pieces as much. And I think the main reason why it's so popular is because they, basically gave it away for free as well to to all of their subscribers and that gave them a huge head start and obviously it's hurting hurting slack i mean they have this business that is microsoft office it's it is yes. it's the definition of a productivity subscription business it should continually encompass and add functionality what is productivity today versus what is productivity in 10 years if it's an office suite it has to evolve right it's it's evolution it's are, do we talk about the smartphone today like it's just the phone is there such a thing as a dumb phone anymore? 
Sure they are. Sure well, they are. I mean, we, 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 I mean, it's, it's a rhetorical. <laughs> no, I guess this is this is my point: is 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 these things are going to align and and. In, in, in deep integration technology stacks and in every company is going to to pick one and you know it's it's how quick can you get them integrated and if you're not if you're a new technology how quickly can you integrate with many of them like snowflake has done or, or Atlassian has done in order to provide value add to the technology that they're competing so on when you say pick one like pick a particular product or pick the whole stack like what what do you think pick the cloud provider Pick the cloud player. So in Atlassian's case, Atlassian just said, everything has to be built for AWS moving forward. And I want to say that was like a 2011 decision that the company made across the board. We Everybody had to start transitioning all of our workloads towards it. And, and everything, regardless of whether or not it was the best in breed technology, was moving to that technology stack. And it will be interesting. I, I agree for a company, it's easier to pick one provider. It will be interesting how that develops over time, in particular with Amazon and Microsoft being competitors as well at the same time as providing that platform. That makes it, I think, uh, a difficult position for, for any companies to actually build on top of their platform. And like Microsoft obviously is a big competitor now with like Atlassian and with like Slack. So would they run but their with business everybody, on, they on their cloud? With everybody yeah. and everything, they're exactly. everywhere. And I think like Microsoft, to be fair to them, I haven't heard as much misgivings to, towards them. Like Amazon has definitely been worse where they're kind of like known of like just taking a product in particular in, in the open source space. If we talk about search products, Elastic, the company is not, is not very happy with them, obviously for taking the technology, reselling it and cutting really into the business. Google has been playing much nicer with open source uh, yeah, companies. They did a partnership with both Mongo uh, and Elastic. Teresa. Yeah, so but I don't I don't know anybody that picks Google. Well, we pick Google. And oh, there you go. I don't, uh, I don't I, know anything that. <laughs> well, I, I think the like Google has really good technology and they're, they're slowly coming along. Like we're really happy with Google Cloud platform, but like clearly it's a, a third player if you if you subscribe to kind of their product and the way of doing things. Like in particular in, in Kubernetes, they were leading that that uh, charge. So for us, it's been working really well. But for even for us, like we're thinking about, do we need to be on on multiple clouds at some stage as a highly available service? Like if you think about Ops Genie, for example, or Status Page, there was always like most of them have to be available on different cloud providers, at least as a backup. So if something, if all of Amazon goes down again, that happens once in a while, then uh, Status Page or Ops Genie still need to work. So how do you how more do you make regionally that? than more more regional data centers than anything real on that? Oh, like it's regional, but sometimes it, it's just yeah, it's just the the network breaks breaks off, and you need to they they both support multiple cloud providers, right? So, so it's offsite backup, right? I mean, this goes back to the whole backup data center, like you know, New yeah. York Stock Exchange, two thousand and one. Where what are you using for backup and recovery after? So, but the thing I would say about that though is that problem doesn't happen often. And the other thing that I would say about it is that it gets fixed very fast. And even if one component of your stack is built on a component that fails in another distributed network system, none of it works. Yeah, I mean, what would be the point so, if you had to back up everything? It'd be too expensive, right? I mean, then why then why go if the whole purpose of public cloud isn't actually being able to handle that? Then. You know, they should have the redundancies in place anyway, right? Like that, that is the whole point of AWS. 
Yeah, at the end of the day, the thing that matters more than anything is whether or not the data has parity and what is the mean time to recovery or the, the, the mean time to loss on that. And, and that, that time has to be very, very low. And if you go through an IPO process, like that's one of the risks that's, that gets identified and you basically you shrink the data loss to, to the smallest amount of time that it is reasonable in order to recover across the entire global network system. Yeah, but if you look at like Snowflake, for example, or Terraform or any of the technologies that provide some, some way to be a bit more agnostic to different yeah, the providers. Switzerland, the, Swiss, the, Switzerland, right? the, the Switzerland infrastructure guys. Yeah. It, Okta is another all, one, right? All, Okta wins on being essentially neutral. Exactly. It's at data availability. It's not data reliability. There's, no, they're, think, they're, very, they're, they're very nuanced differences because like if I can't get my my data business reports for like a couple hours, who cares? But like what I care about is, is when they start fighting each other and I can get network cognitivity in order to get that data reasonably into that network. That, I guess that's part of point. it, but it's also the, it's basically an insurance policy as well for you. If there's a risk associated with just being on, like relying on one cloud provider. And the more sure, but that, get, I, So do you have all of them or are you just do no, your no, data? No, no. No, so basically, the more you get entrenched, and you have to look at what products to use in that in that provider. It's just like easy to that's my just, point exactly. Just the, just the compute. It's easy to move away from that. But if you get into BigQuery, which we are, or into uh, like Redshift or any of the the big data providers, it's not that easy to move terabytes of data into a different into a different data warehouse product. Oh, this, so, is, this is exactly my point. This is exactly my point. My point is, is, is that there's three of them. There's, there's two that matter. There's a third one that is like the redheaded stepchild. I'm a redhead, but there's a third set. And, and you, you're going to pick. Wait, 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 wait. What about Oracle? I mean, t- I'm, a, I'm a redhead. I'm a redhead. T- TikTok just moved to Oracle. You forgot about number four. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, keep Whatever going. Keep say, going. That, <laughs> There's two of them, and you're going to move to one of these two things. Eighty percent of the workloads are not there yet. It, like, and and you're going to. I want to, I want to audit that statistic. But yes, continue. I want to audit it as well. I wish I could remember that you're moving to one of these platforms, and and is it worth it for you to build a monolithic cloud system? We thought so at Docker. It was part of our value proposition in terms of the way that we're selling, and it, it turned out not to matter. And so I'm not I'm not convinced that most people need multi-cloud capability. What they need is multi-region capability. And I think that all of the cloud providers that are, are major, all the way down to Oracle, maybe, are capable of providing that. And when you look at the potential of what these companies are going to do, the, the runway is very long for these people, which yeah. is, by the way, why I own a ton of Amazon. Yeah, I don't think you need to run anything on like multiple clouds. Most companies don't, but I think we both agree that the, the more you can kind of not integrate too deeply into different aspects of it because you don't rely on it, the, the better it is because you have the ability to switch if you need to. It's basically like an insurance. And, and I would add to this, at Atlassian, we backed our data offsite from these, these cloud providers. I mean, that was the part that mattered more than anything else. See, but like this is where I have a question at the end of the day, right? I mean, the whole dream that is the cloud, if I'm bringing you in to my cloud, I want like the long-term investment that I'm making. I want you to be sticky. I want you to be locked in. I'm going That's my to my point. You're locked in. Yeah, I, I understand. So like, there's a counter prevailing argument today with a snowflake, which is, Hey, 
the hybrid cloud is where it's where it's going. And like people, I just like I had somebody say it to me recently. I don't know who it was. He was like, I spent all this time just getting off fucking IBM. You know, I don't want to be stuck on, on AWS, right? But I the counter is well, okay, fine. L- like you were saying, okay, it's between two between Microsoft and Azure and, and whatnot. But like if I look at it. Snowflake, for example, one of the big things that w- was talked about them when I first looked at it going against Teradata and even like against Redshift is they separate compute from storage in terms of the billing. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, Redshift just introduced that like t- two months ago. And when I look at Snowflake, and you guys understand this better than me, obviously, I, I can speak the lingo and have gotten a, a bit up on, on, on the language IQ. But technically speaking, I'm, I, I don't have the, the, the level of understanding to really get into it. But when I look at it, I, like it rem, this IPO reminded me of VMware. VMware came along, virtualization. And you, by the way, coming from Docker, right, uh, Justin? Docker was kind of this kind of vision again, too, in terms of moving down the, down the road when you think about it. But virtualization was this big thing about servers. You can just kind of virtualize everything that you need to run. It's, it's essentially... It was the big technical IPO. And in 2007, it was the last time kind of anyone got excited about something in software that let's just call it as, you know, it's technical infrastructure. So Snowflake comes along and, and Snowflake is, it's a virtual warehouse built from scratch, which going back to Sajari, right? Like when you look at a lot of these things, like, you know, Eric Wan leaves, leaves Cisco and he's like, I want to rebuild. And you guys talk about how hard it is to start a product inside a big company. And I'm, I'm sure Cisco looked at the revenue of WebEx and was like, listen, dude, I don't care if your customers are not in love with me. That's not, <laughs> we are not going to, to dedicate resources and engineers to build this thing from the ground up because they're not thinking that there's going to be a, a virus and that, that the user experience is going to be just at the margin that much better. Like I have people who talk about WebEx like it is COVID-19 in terms of having to use both. Like they freaking hate WebEx now. They're like, yeah. I dread my WebEx meetings because I've been, I'm doing, they're doing three or four Zoom meetings a day. I'm not doing that. But like, I have a friend, he just goes on and on. He, he was joking the other day. He's like, they should pass the Zoom law. Everybody should have to use Zoom for meetings and WebEx should be barred. When you see that and you see, I mean, there is kind of a herd mentality, but it's just that much better, but that has user experience. When I look at a virtual warehouse and I see everyone get so excited about it, like it's Facebook or like it's a Zoom, you know, Zoom was a very hot IPO. People forget that. It's not like it was a slouch last year. You know, when I went long Zoom, it was the most expensive stock in all of software. And it, it has maintained that, that rankings up until Snowflake. But when you look at how it makes money, it's very, very, very impressive. When you look at Snowflake, you're like, all right, you're sitting between data visualization and, and business intelligence, and then between the compute and the storage. Like when I look at that TAM and they say it's 80 billion, I'm like, well, all right, Amazon did 40 billion in AWS total revenue. Uh, I know Azure is much lower, and I know Google is a fraction. All right, so they're all less than 80 billion, and like those are the utilities they're selling the power and the warehouse, the actual physical one. So I'm like, that TAM is kind of useless to me, and I. I we're not going to get into TAM debates, but when, when, you, when you think about this glue and what, what people get excited about it, what they have gotten excited about is that, hey, like you're going to need this because clouds will not dominate and you won't have lock-in. Do you guys, looking at it- I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't buy into it. And the question you got to ask yourself to, to, to just keep going back to this analogy is, is who do you want to get pregnant with? 
Like who are you going to spend the next 10 years as your technology partner? And if it's, if it's a vertically integrated stack and it provides additional multiplier effects across the technologies that are in that stack, that makes your business function better. And we are very early in the stages of that. We can go and audit my statement, but like there are very early emerging winners for the next decade of technology. And, and anybody that thinks that they know what's going to happen in technology more than 10 years from now, uh, you know what? I want to meet that person. Hey, I agree but, with you on that. Uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, but there are clear winners and there are clear business processes. I talk to my friends in the Midwest where I grew up. I grew up in Minnesota and Wisconsin. They still use Excel spreadsheets to manage their tickets. And so when I look at Jira, I'm like, yep, can't wait for those people to get on Jira. Right? I talked to them about wallboards. I talked to them about site search. I talked to them about any number of the technologies that have emerged from Silicon Valley over the last five to 10 years. They, they are not prevalent in their business processes yet. And so that's why these valuations are high is because it is a massive land grab that is going on in order to compete for the way that business is going to be done in the future. Yeah, I, I can't really, in terms of the valuation for Snowflake, I, I'm not sure how it got to the point where it is. So I, the, the whole point I made earlier about kind of being the Switzerland is one argument. And that, I think that must be part of the reason why people want it. Maybe it's the newest technology, but from I know I haven't used any apart from BigQuery. I haven't used any of the other technologies in detail. But from what I read, it doesn't seem to be a, it doesn't seem to be a big difference. The, the usability of BigQuery is just as good as, as Snowflake. Um, there's some, some slight feature differences, even from a pricing perspective. It doesn't, they, they all seem to be very, very similar. BigQuery charges for like the number of queries you make, which is very similar to the compute and charges for storage as well separately. Probably a bit harder to predict, but on the other hand, like you also have BigQuery um, Omni that they announced in July where you can run and analyze data across different cloud providers. So Google Cloud and Amazon are support at the moment. They're going to support Azure as well without having to leave the BigQuery user interface. So you can connect to the other systems. And I think this is kind of Google's play because they know that they're behind and they have to build bridges to the other systems to kind of compete and, and lure people over. So that will be interesting. But I think for Snowflake, there must have been a big impact of Warren Buffett. He doesn't easily invest in companies like Snowflake. So well, he's 90 years have... old. And I, you know, it's, it's Ted and Tom, I think, is the two guys who are probably doing this. Uh, the, you know, it's, uh, I, don't, uh, I think he's just trying to stay alive right now. Yeah, so, but I think for like, that's in, in the media, you see Warren Buffett invested in it. And that, that's kind of the, that, that's what has the impact for other people to throw in money as well, in particular for the IPO, right? Like and they always. got ServiceNow's uh, hired gun, the, the, right. the legendary Slutman. But no, no, look, but I think one thing that I think people really like about that is, hey, I built it from scratch. We said we're not going to try to move from this architected world. I mean, Teradata has been around since, I think, the late 70s. Like part of their argument has been, oh, you're going to kill us? Many people have tried. <laughs> you know, I mean, like. That's really what they've said. And like, there's like they, they, they have a case that sits around that. Of course, if you look at them, annualized subscription revenue is like 1.1 billion, you know, growing into single digits. And, you know, IBM's got Netezza, it's even significantly smaller. And you can, you, you know, guesstimate math on Redshift and, and Microsoft. And 
when when I compare being vendor neutral and like where I was asking you guys from, you know, having been on, on sitting on the inside, is I look at Okta and I say, okay, single sign-on. When I got a ton of applications and all these microservices and like you know, we listened to the Slack CEO five six months ago when he's talking about Slack internally is using like four hundred different SaaS applications or something like yep. that, right? Like a crazy wild number. So when you think about that, I want to consolidate billing just like anybody. If you have a bunch of streaming services, when you get into like the Roku value proposition, like it's like, hey, you, you just pay us and we handle everything else. Apple is doing this obviously in all kinds of content and bundles. Bundling is a big deal. So when you look at Okta, you say, okay, well, if I'm using a bunch of different applications, it's kind of simulating Microsoft Office Suite. I've, I've rolled them all into one I, and I've got one password, one person handling security which is important, and to also a degree like replacing kind of that infrastructure need that you needed. But when I look at Snowflake, I say, well, you're kind of abstracting the infrastructure down into little micro components versus giving me a, a, a single portal path to simplifying you know, how I manage my security because I've now distributed my system. It's proprietary data though, that's why. It's proprietary data. We had this issue, Ben Ian's and I saw this is is the source code at the companies. Just, we, we thought of the source code as the last thing that was going to go to the cloud and people were going to be the most defensible about it. I, I see the same thing with data. I can pay for a service in order you in order for you to manipulate this data or or use this data in order to provide tangential benefits. But me controlling this data that's proprietary to my business is going to be the the last thing that I'm going to transition to the cloud. And that's why the multi-cloud component matters in, in terms of the, the the snowflake example, in my opinion. Yeah, it's, and it's also the, if you think about Amazon and Microsoft as potential competitors, there's like, do you want to give them the data or do you give it to another third party that is not a threat to your business? So that might be, and whether that's like justified or not, because the data is encrypted and they probably won't access it otherwise it, it it ruins their whole business if that ever comes out but it's still in people's minds i mean that's the point where the where the moving away and you start looking at your bill and you think about what it was when you controlled your infrastructure and you say well you know did we come full circle again which was an argument that utilitarian computing obviously does date back to the 60s you set up these service bureaus and they would do data processing for you, which was part of that, that, whole, that whole history lesson when, when I did this once upon a time in tech type thing, peace, whatever. I, I think it oversimplifies everything. Like how do you build multi-redundant data center failovers? How do you build in alerting? How do you normalize the technology? I, I just don't think that any company can compare uh, in terms of execution, which goes back to Atlassian's decision in 2011 or so, where they basically said, if AWS has a service that provides the technology that we need, you are moving or all future technology decisions are moving to this platform. And it last thing is a very forward. Well, there you go. Daniel, what do you think? As far as the lock-in aspects, I think the, I think there's two tiers here, right? There's the lock-in on the actual cloud services themselves and what's integrated there. But then there's sort of those higher up, either higher up or lower up services that are integrated, but they're independent. And that's, again, where we get into that sort of point product question and 
pager duties, the fire alarm. So, okay, maybe that's important. But like some of these products, you, you get back down to the business analysis of how essential are these solutions to what companies are actually doing? How important is it that they have a great chat versus a great video versus et cetera? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't have, I don't have much more sophisticated. Do you, have, do you hate that. WebEx? <laughs> oh, I think WebEx is a material. I, and Google Meet is still a material step down from. I mean, yes. I, I was laughing because I'm in a, I'm in a club here in Spain, and everybody was kind of going back and forth in our WhatsApp group because our WebEx license is no longer free. And does anybody have a Zoom? And what about? I heard Teams is free, but Teams is belongs to Google. No, that's Microsoft, and like just this whole debate playing out. Yeah, I mean, I haven't tried Teams. Skype, I guess, is probably, I I don't know if it's the same technology. I still use that with my family, and that's like, it's probably the number two after Zoom in terms of fidelity. I still don't know if that's enough of a, the use case is enough there for something like Zoom. And that's where what's, that's what's interesting about it. Is that like really essential function, or is that something that's going to be wiped out because people do, whether it's a year from now, even 18 months from now? Go back to the offices more normally. I think if they can innovate on the technology, because this is this is basically how they one day just provided a more reliable, a better service. And if they keep that up, and be the number one technology, then that can work. And the if you look on their website, they, they're trying to become more than just a video conference. Also, like Zoom phone, they're selling the hardware to companies to to increase the lock-in. So I think they have a good strategy to entrench themselves more and to also grow into different like grow different parts of the business and become more of an infrastructure provider potentially like that's something we talked about earlier but yeah if i see ever like a cisco meeting on tv and you see someone interviewing someone via cisco i'm surprised they put their name on it because the quality is always so bad i i i don't know why they i don't know why they would put their logo on it they don't seem to care I mean, they still yeah. make money out of it. That seems to be the case. All right. And just, we're just talking about rapid, because we've been going for a while here. I mean, we could probably keep keep going for a while. I did want to, since we're all spread out, uh, and uh, Justin and I did got into this last time, and I think, you know, Daniel uh, as well, we, when we were discussing our different views uh, on, on COVID, and, you know, it's been six months later. But as far as where we're at today, COVID-wise, I mean, what are you guys seeing quick summary, if we can, as far as where you live, since we're all spread out around the world for the, for the rest of you, for the three of the three of you guys, uh, relative to me, at least, what are you seeing differently? Like, I mean, Jens, you're in Australia. You guys have had, I mean, I'm seeing some of the news flow. Have people kind of acclimated to it? Are they kind of over it? Are like, where, where are we at? How's it impacting you day-to-day work-wise from the cycle we've gone through? Because it was like, we had this, we had the first panic. And then we had kind of like, oh, it's over and it's died. And then it's like the rest of the world's doing great. America's idiots. And now it's resurging in Europe and America's not, uh, they're still idiots, but here's why it's resurging and so on and so forth. But like day to day, hit us with your take. Yeah, in Australia is different. It really depends on where you are in Australia. So in, in Melbourne, Victoria, the state down south, the uh, has researched quite a bit and they locked down the borders and they have a lockdown so you can only go out i think once a day for an hour and uh, only by yourself they're very strict strict restrictions 
and I, I think mean, that's people, very strict. Yeah, and people, and the thing is, people they they follow it. I think that's the biggest thing in Australia. Like they say, okay, well, we have to do this. Of course, there's like demonstrations, and not everybody, the anti-maskers and and everything. But I think in general, they Australia has been very disciplined about the following the restrictions and then trying to get to to a point where it's it's more loose. And this is where we are in in Sydney, where you you still have you still check in. It's more about tracing than really strict kind of control. The restaurants are open, not at full capacity, but I would say. I don't know, 50 or 75% capacity, maybe more. I think, and, and just testing all the time, testing. I have two young children, two, two twins, they're 16 months old. And we basically get them COVID tested every two weeks because they always come home with a cold for something. And then my partner's like, oh, we should really get them tested. It's like, yeah, okay, fair enough. Wait, they're 16 months old. Where are they going? We, uh, there's a drive-through COVID test that you can do. Just drive there, they swap them in their mouth. And then uh, two days later, or like a day later, usually 24 hours, you get the results via your phone. So it's pretty straightforward. They do a good job here with the, the testing and everything. The, but you, you also see a lot of the businesses changing, like the CBD, like the central business district is a lot, like all the business there are affected because people don't live there. People go there usually to work and most people still work from home. Some companies go back. We ourselves, we didn't dissolve the office, but we started sharing it with another company. So we go in a few days a week, they go in a few days a week, and it's more like a hot desk situation. And most of us are working from home now, and we're probably going to keep that up. But in, in terms of restrictions, pretty free here. You don't have to worry too much about it. All right. Uh, Daniel? Yeah, it's interesting. I think... I mean, you're, you're in Europe. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in Spain, which is definitely leading the resurgence. It's worse in Madrid, the capital. I'm in Valencia, which is a few hours away and on the coast. Honestly, except for the masks, things feel pretty close to normal. It's We have nice weather, so it's super easy to dine outside. I have dined on my own inside a couple times. We talked this morning. I was coming home from the gym. I have been going to the gym again with a mask on, but it doesn't... The cases are really high. Deaths are, are falling. I mean, it's definitely not as crazy a wave because the testing is much more aggressive, but... Yeah, I mean, I'm a little bit alarmed at what's going on in terms of the case flow, but if you're just on the street, things sort of feel, I don't want to say normal, but you, you notice that the world's different. And like we, I mentioned that club where we were doing the online meetings, we normally meet in person. I think we're allowed to have up to 15 people at a meeting. The first one we tried to do, not enough people wanted to go. I don't know if it's related to like concerns, but yeah, so it's it's like this little, there's schools are open and I don't follow the news super closely, but it doesn't seem like it's been a huge problem having them open. But yeah, we're sort of in that in between. It feels sort of normal, but I, I'm watching out to see if we end up having some more restrictions by October or November. You think that it carries through or you, I mean, obviously it's impossible at this point And like, you know, from what we were talking about six months ago to where we're at today. You know, this concept that this like the realization that it's still here and still has uncertainty and waves. But do you think that the day-to-day life impact is just like people are kind of there's still kind of like that, okay, the restrictions are here, we're over it. Like it's not it's obviously it's not as political as the US, is it? No, I mean you definitely have that. I mean, 
exported from the U.S. and endemic, I think you have some of that resistance, but it's not it's not as widespread as the debate in the U.S. for sure. And in terms of tourism, I mean, I, like, I mean, if I was running a business and you forced me into back into a lockdown again, if you didn't kill me the first time, you probably killed me now. Justin, you've shared a lot of stuff in terms of what's going on on the, on the West Coast in San Francisco and whatnot. And we saw, the, I think, that New York Times article on, on the restaurants there, what they're dealing with. Nine out of 10 are supposedly not paying rent still. When you think about Spain, like day-to-day dining and, and small businesses, like there, there isn't like an uproar around this as people are just kind of dealing with like, hey, the summer was the summer and we're having a, an uptick. There's definitely a ton of concern here, I would say. I mean, it, you know, Spain is a tourist economy. Our region is tourists. It's a lot of British, Northern Europeans who come down to vacation. And as cases started ticking back up, it became you had to quarantine when you went back to the UK. So that was controversial. Nightclubs eventually got closed because that was believed to be a big source of spreading. I think people let their guard down to a degree. I live in a university neighborhood and things feel maybe 10% quieter than they normally do, but it's usually pretty loud on our street. And I think it's still like we we went out to dinner basically across the street from our apartment building Saturday night. And there are like three or four student hangouts and they were still pretty crowded. So I think there's a lot, you read a lot of concern in the hospitality business as far as this impact. And I think it's, I think I saw a headline somewhere and I didn't confirm this, but another like double digit GDP drop reported in Spain. Like they're definitely, it's definitely rough, but I do think there's a little bit more not to try to both because I don't know fully and I don't like to make these comparisons too strongly, but feels like a little bit more solidarity and sort of understanding of, yeah, this is going to be a hard period. And then we've just got to kind of grit our teeth and get through it. Well, that's good. And Justin, ground zero, you know, you guys have fires, Armageddon, uh, Silicon Valley, everything else at San Francisco, you're out in, 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 in the woods. Yeah. You know, I mean, I have an office in San Francisco. I have a place there and I also have a farm in Napa and the two places could not be more different. In San Francisco, 56% of businesses are, are, are closed or declare that they're not going to reopen which is a systemic shock to the city. And you see, you know, I talked to guys on my hockey team. I want to say that a third of them, maybe even as many as half have permanently moved away just because uh, a lot of them have jobs in tech and they've, they've been given the option to work remote through next summer, basically when they have to declare where their kids are going to go, if they have that, because you need at least a year you're thinking about how you're going to deal with their routines up in Napa. It couldn't be more different. I mean, the restaurants are open. I go to indoor dining, you know, I, I, I got people that work on my vineyard and they, they're like, I don't see any zombies. I mean, these people interact with people all day. And so I, I, I pay for Y charts, which if anybody doesn't use it, it's a fantastic product. And, and, and it shows the number of daily positive tests that are occurring in the United States, and it's dropping substantially. But one thing that stays the same is the hospitalization rate. And so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to square all these things in my mind together. 
Yeah, we were at record record low in in, in Maryland on hospitalization. Again, that, that's again these are things are these are not easy things to square mentally, right? I mean, it, exactly. It's, uh, where is the deaths coming from? And I was actually looking at that. But the rate you know, has stayed for, the same. I think the, for, rate, the rate is yeah. Just... The rate has stayed the same, but we spread out into away from big cities. About forty percent more. The second hundred thousand in the U.S. is like is forty percent more from from more rural areas. So the thing I think about in terms of investing, because this is an investment podcast, is you know you had Fauci. Oh, thanks for reminding us. You had Fauci, and he reported to to Congress today, and he was on the Wall Street Journal podcast a few days ago, and he basically said that there's three there's three variables to think about, and I, I really like what he said a lot. He said, "What is the effectiveness rate of the vaccine?" And so he talked about the polio vaccine being at 99 percent effective. He thinks that an upper bound score of the COVID would be approved at 75%. So, I mean, that's, okay. a, that's a huge difference. And then he said that what you have to multiply that by is the number of people that are willing to take it. And so, yeah, which is like <laughs> a problem. It, 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 so, I talked to, I mean, I live in a very liberal place, California, and I would really? say, I'd, I'd say that half the people that I talk to or less are not going to be willing to take a vaccine in the short term. And so what they look I mean, I don't know if I would take it based on what I've been hearing, you know, so well, hold on. Like a, there's, there's actually there's a third variable is this is what is the manufacture rate of that vaccine? And so the thing that he talked about and he said it to Congress today, uh, I believe it was his testimony was today, but he, he basically it, he's been pitching it to the media for the last week is, is he said, we're going to get 50 to 100 million doses and we've already started producing them prior to them being available. The first people that are going to get them, if we can get them to take it, are going to be the hospital workers. And then the people that are going to take it after that are going to be the elderly. Because by the time anybody that's listening to this podcast gets it, it's going to be 18 months at the earliest. And so what I try to reconcile in my mind is what are the purchasing dynamic changes that are occurring in the market or what are the behavioral technology changes that are going to be permanent going back to the beginning of this podcast and how will that influence the the companies that I'm investing in? Based on your companies, you're, you're in good shape. I mean, from, from what I know you're holding. So the dynamics play out. They continue to play out well. I mean, there is that, that element. For example, Twitter was up a lot today and, you know, I was impressed with it actually doing anything. But that's benefiting from sports, right? And I mean, we've we've seen what's happened. In, what, you remember when you were talking about buying Penn Gaming at thirty dollars? And what is that thing now? Seven? Like there's a, there's a, there's a cadre of stocks where you're like, all right, I kind of get how things have worked out amazing for them uh, under COVID that have kind of emerged recently on top of the the previous the, the Zooms and the Twilios and the Fastlys and the e-commerce, the Shopify's and uh, I mean, and the Amazons. I mean, Shopify's gone nowhere in, in four months. I mean, you look at some of those where, again, when we say that, there's been this conditioning mentally of, hey, 100% is normal, right? I've gone nowhere. But I mean, the stock, I, th- I thought Shopify was a, was, a, was a decent short at $400 at the start of the year. And at 900, we're saying it's a disappointment that it's, it's, not, it's not at 2000 yet. I guess my point, my point is we have turbulence for another 18 months. Yeah. You get right to the point. But no, no, I agree. I mean, there's definitely the. But when you say turbulence for the next eighteen months, do you think that there isn't still, particularly here in the United States, a lot of people who are mentally over it, like day to day life? We're about to. We're about, you, we're about to vote on it. <laughs> it's a big. It's a big decision. 
All right, guys. I think that's a good way to end it right there. <laughs> that's a, that's its own its own turbulence provider, depending on what happens there. But, uh, election election twenty twenty. I mean, I did watch uh, Trump's speech uh, highlights from Philly yesterday, and I was petrified. But whatever. <sighs> well, I had yeah. a great time. Thank you, guys. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, guys. It's been a lot of fun. Obviously, we covered a lot here and appreciate you. We figured out how to make it work on three continents and four coasts. Yeah, hopefully we can do this again sometime. Yeah, we'd love to. Ciao, guys. Thank you for listening to The Razor's Edge. Subscribe to this wherever you get your podcasts. Hit us up on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman and at Akram's Razor with suggestions, requests, or anything else. We aim to publish a new episode every Tuesday morning and love to hear from you. If you can share this with a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd be really grateful as that will help the podcast grow and improve. This has been a Shortman Studios production. Our theme song is Move On by Soquel. Thank you again for listening and see you next week.